Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. If we haven't met yet, my name is Chase Ifland. I'm uh, the Minister of Community and Connection here at Redemption Church. And if you're new with us, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts this morning. Uh, we are almost at the end. We plan to wrap up this book at the end of July, which means we are down to uh, the last couple of weeks in this series. And for the last few months, we've been primarily following the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Acts on his uh, missionary journeys through the first century world. And Today we're going to be in Acts 19, which is a really powerful and crazy chapter that uh, one commentator called the climax of Paul's missionary work. But before we get there, uh, show of hands, who remembers when Kanye West's album, Jesus is King, came out a few years ago? Anybody? Say a lot of hands. Uh, we were still living in North Carolina at the time, and so I don't know if it was the same here, but I remember out there when that album came out, everyone was talking about it. Uh, whether or not people listened to Kanye West before that album or not, everyone seemed like they were listening to that album and wanted to talk about it. I remember our uh, pastor in North Carolina referenced that album or quoted lyrics from one of those songs in basically every sermon for like two or three months. Um, I've only been at Redemption for three years, so I don't know for sure. My guess is that Jeff has never quoted Kanye in a sermon, but I don't know. I'm not saying he's not hip enough. I just, I don't know. Um, if you don't remember the album or you have no idea what I'm talking about, Kanye West is a very famous rapper, and in 2019, he released an album called Jesus is King, which he described as an expression of the gospel. And when that album came out, it seemed like everybody had an opinion on Kanye and on that album, and I'm not here to give you my opinion um, this morning. I've gotten myself in trouble once from, for endorsing something from pop culture in the pulpit here at Redemption, so I'm not going to do that again. But what was cool about the popularity of that album was that some of the songs were really clear declarations of who Jesus is. And uh, a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, were singing those songs simply because Kanye West was the one that released it. And the last song on the album in particular really stood out to me. It was the shortest song on the album. It was meant to be kind of the last thing that Kanye leaves people with on the album. And it was called Jesus is Lord. And it was just 50 short seconds of Kanye singing, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And honestly, I thought it was a pretty powerful way to end the album because the rest of the album had some good theology and some bad theology. If you remember, it had some fun songs about Chick-fil-A being closed on Sundays. But the last thing Kanye wanted to leave with people on this album, which he called an expression of the gospel, was that Jesus is Lord. 
And that's, that's a phrase or concept that gets thrown around a lot in our culture. If you watch the Oscars or the Grammys, you'll probably hear at least one acceptance speech where someone thanks their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, you might hear an athlete being interviewed after a big win, and they might say, first, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We hear uh, those words, Jesus is Lord or Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, a lot, both in the church and even in the wider culture. But what do we really mean when we say that Jesus is Lord. I think we, as modern Christians in the West, we have a a decent grasp on what it means that Jesus is our Savior. He's the one who offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God after we die. But we struggle a little bit with what it means that Jesus is our Lord. And I think the main reason we struggle with Jesus as Lord is because we don't really like the implications of what that means. The implications of Jesus as Savior, forgiveness of sin, living forever in heaven, those things sound great. But if Jesus is our Lord, it means that we're not our Lord. And if we're not our Lord, Jesus is our Lord, it means he gets to tell us what we should believe and what we should do, and that begins to make us a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus is Lord is an easy thing to say, it's an easy thing to sing, but it's a very countercultural message that's really hard to actually live out. But even if the phrase Jesus is Lord or Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has become a a bit of a cliche that you expect to hear in acceptance speeches or post-game interviews, uh, it is true. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And if we only see him as Savior but not as Lord, then we've missed the complete message of the Bible. If Jesus is Lord, but we don't live like he's Lord, then we're not honoring the rightful king of the universe who created us and who governs all things. And if we see Jesus as our savior who gets us into heaven when we die, but don't think that he has much to say about our life here and now, then we'll lose out on the deep, meaningful life that's available to us in Christ. And so the stakes are high when we're talking about what it really means that Jesus is Lord. And in Acts 19, in our text this morning, we see examples, several different stories that illustrate Jesus as Savior and Lord play out in the city of Ephesus. And the two things together combined in that city is what makes this chapter so powerful and potentially could be considered the climax of Paul's missionary work. So let's dive in and see what God's word has for us this morning. Uh, Look with me at Acts 19, and um, I'm going to start by reading uh, just verses 1 through verse 10. So it says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so at the very end of Acts 18, the last chapter that we looked at last week, uh, Paul 
had visited Ephesus for the first time, but it doesn't appear that he stayed very long before continuing back to his home base in Antioch. But now Paul has set out on his third and final missionary journey. He's left Antioch. He's worked his way back to Ephesus. And when he arrives in Ephesus, Luke tells us that he found some disciples. But when Paul asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit, they said, no, we didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. And so Paul digs deeper. He asks them about baptism. They tell Paul that they have been baptized with John the Baptist's baptism, to which Paul responds that John's baptism was about repentance, which is part of the gospel, but it was supposed to point towards Jesus and his life, burial, and resurrection, which is the complete gospel. And so Paul baptizes them again, this time in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they receive the Holy Spirit. There's a lot going on in these first verses, and some of it is pretty confusing. Uh, when I first read it, some of the questions that, that came to my mind were, are, are these disciples genuine Christians when Paul meets them, or are they not saved until after Paul baptizes them and tells them more about the story? And if they are Christians when Paul meets them, how is it possible for them to be Christians but not have the Holy Spirit? And then why does Paul have to lay his hands on them for the Holy Spirit to come? And then when the Holy Spirit comes, why do they immediately begin start speaking in tongues? There's a lot going on in this little story, and we don't have time to unpack everything there. But I do want to explain just a couple of things that are going on in this passage. And one of the reasons I think it is important to dig into the mess a little bit here is because this is one story that's been used by certain church traditions um, to suggest that the normal pattern for Christian salvation is to trust Jesus and be saved, and then later on to receive the Holy Spirit and for that reception of the Spirit to be accompanied by speaking in tongues in order for it to be genuine. And just by reading this story, it kind of seems like that could be what's happening here. And so you might understand why somebody could come to that conclusion, because it looks like this group was maybe a group of genuine Christians who had trusted Jesus in the past for salvation. Then Paul meets them, they receive the Holy Spirit, and they begin speaking in tongues. But it's a lot more murky than that. And I think, like many of the stories in the book of Acts, we should see this story as something unique happening here and not something that we should expect for everyone. Here's a couple of reasons why. First, Luke calls this group disciples in verse one, which makes us think, well, that th this group has to be Christians. And they could be, but it could also be that Luke is just telling us that Paul is assuming that they're disciples, but then he finds out they really aren't. Or it could mean that they were disciples of John the Baptist, not disciples of Jesus. Then Paul asks them if, if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed, and it could be that Paul is affirming that they genuinely believed, but they may not have the Spirit. Or it could be he's just assuming that they genuinely believe, but then when he hears they don't have the, the Spirit, he figures out his assumption is wrong, and he realizes that these are not actually Christians. And again, it's a tricky little story to nail down exactly what's going on here with this group. And one of the reasons why it's so tricky is because when we read it, we're trying to read it with our 21st century categories of what it means to be saved or converted. But remember, in the first century here, th this group was a group of Jews who had grown up following God. They had grown up knowing the Old Testament. They had heard about John the Baptist's preaching about repentance, and they obeyed that, it looks like. They got baptized. And so, in other words, they were doing the best that they could with the information they had about what it meant to follow God as a first century Jew. But then they met Paul, and Paul had an opportunity to tell them the end of the story. 
Paul told them that everything in their Old Testament scriptures and in John's preaching was pointing towards Jesus and his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And then when they hear the gospel, they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and receive the Spirit. And this, this time in the first century, as Paul's going out and proclaiming the gospel and others are going out, is this time of transition where the, the Jews in the first century are learning that Jesus is the, the rightful fulfillment of their Jewish faith. And so you have groups like these who are doing their best to follow God all throughout their lives. And then Jesus as the Messiah breaks in in their lifetime and they come to believe in him as the Messiah. That doesn't happen today because everybody, all the Jews, know about Jesus. And so we can't just take our categories that work today and impress them upon the story or it's not going to make sense to us. And so were they saved before they met Paul or not? It's not really fair to say for sure, but what we can see clearly is that they needed to learn more. They were missing the full message about who Jesus is, what he came to do. They were missing the Holy Spirit And so Paul teaches them about Jesus, he baptizes them in his name, and they receive the Spirit. And then the last tricky part of the story is that the Spirit only comes when Paul lays his hands on them, and then when the Spirit comes, his coming is really obvious because it's accompanied by speaking in tongues and prophesying. And we've already talked about this several times in the book of Acts, so I won't go into detail here. But like I said earlier, it's clear that this story in Ephesus, like many in the book of Acts, is a unique and powerful story of salvation. There are story, and we know this because there are stories in the book of Acts where people receive the Holy Spirit and immediately speak in tongues, and there are stories when they don't. There are stories in Acts where the indwelling of the Spirit only comes after an apostle lays hands on them, And there are stories when the Spirit comes without any apostle being present. There's nothing about the laying on of hands to receive the Spirit or the speaking in tongues after the Spirit comes that's meant to be normative for every Christian at all times and all places. That's true even in the book of Acts. These stories are the exception and not the rule. And so that means we shouldn't expect um, that the Spirit would only come on us if an apostle or Jeff lays his hands on us or that um, salvation is only real if speaking in tongues follows it. Here's how John Stott uh, summarizes this story, and I, I think it's helpful. He says, the norm of Christian experience then is a cluster of four things, repentance, faith in Jesus, water baptism, and the gift of the Spirit. Though the perceived order may vary a little, the four belong together and are universal in Christian initiation. The laying on of apostolic hands, however, together with tongue speaking and prophesying, were special to Ephesus as to Samaria in order to demonstrate visibly and publicly that particular groups were incorporated into Christ by the Spirit. The New Testament does not universalize them. There are no Samaritans or disciples of John the Baptist left in the world today. And so what this story doesn't teach us is that spirit baptism is separate and subsequent to salvation or that speaking in tongues is the only confirmation that someone is indwelled by the Spirit of God. But what this story does teach us is that in salvation, there ought to be a a cluster, to use Stott's word, of these four things present, including repentance of sin, faith or trust in Jesus, baptism, and then receiving the Spirit. And it doesn't mean that all four of these are requirements for salvation. We know that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's not the means by which we're saved, but all four ought to be present in someone who acknowledges that Jesus is Savior. So how can we apply this first part of Acts 19 
to our lives. Um, I think simply we can just ask, are any of those four missing in my life? What about repentance? Have you acknowledged that you are a sinner who's chosen your own way in life and sinned against a holy God? None of us is as bad as we could be, but even the best of us can't measure up to God and his standard. Have you repented and acknowledged your need for a savior outside of yourself to pay the penalty for your sin and reconcile you to God? What about faith in Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone as that savior to give you forgiveness of sins and new life? This group in Ephesus knew they were sinners. They had repented of their sin, but as we see here, it wasn't enough. They needed to trust in Jesus, the only one able to forgive sins and give new life. And it's a danger for us, even though there's no disciples of John the Baptist in the world today, this is still a danger for us as well. We can trust in the faith of our parents or the faith of church attendance or the faith of simple belief in God for salvation. And we can repent of our sins, but not look to Jesus for salvation. And none of that is enough because Jesus and Jesus alone saves. And third, have you been baptized? We had the privilege of celebrating four baptisms last Sunday. Um, It was an awesome time celebrating together as a church after service. Um, baptism is a public declaration of your allegiance to Jesus and your acknowledgement that Jesus is your Savior. And so if you're trusting in Jesus but haven't been baptized, we would love to baptize you. And then lastly, can you point to evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Paul said the fruit of the Spirit, that which should come out of a person who's filled by the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you see these things increasing in your life? Not that you perfectly live this way, of course, but are you increasingly marked by the fruit of the Spirit or by the fruit of the flesh, which Paul says is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and other things like these. These 12 men in Ephesus recognized Jesus as their savior and these four things accompanied their salvation and they should accompany any salvation of anyone who acknowledges that Jesus is savior. And so that's a picture of what it means that Jesus is savior or in Acts 19 here. But now we'll read on and see a couple of stories that highlight Jesus as Lord. So I'll pick it back up in Acts 19 verse 11 and read through verse 20 this time. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. We'll come back to that in a minute. If you thought this story started out crazy, now Paul is just sending aprons around town, and people are being healed. Uh, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. 
And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So if you thought this chapter started out crazy and confusing, um, it gets a lot crazier in this section. Paul's been in Ephesus for two years now, and his ministry has now reached such a powerful place where his handkerchiefs and aprons are being passed around town, and people are being healed, and demons are fleeing just from touching these things. Uh, These were garments that Paul wore while he made tents, and so now simply touching these dirty, sweaty garments is leading to miraculous healing and deliverance from spiritual oppression. But what in the world is going on here? Uh, This sounds more like superstition or witchcraft. It sounds more like what the Jewish exorcists want to do, or even it sounds like Paul is more powerful than Jesus because uh, Jesus did heal someone from a distance one time. Jesus did heal someone who touched him one time, but he didn't just pass his clothes around town and heal a bunch of people uh, just from them touching his clothes. So it's really crazy stuff that's going on here, but There's two important aspects of these miracles that uh, we need to understand and make sure we see. Number one is that verse 11 says, God was doing this. This was God's power at work. This wasn't Paul trying to make some money or earn some fame, which is what we see the Jewish exorcist trying a few verses later. This was God genuinely displaying his power. The other important aspect of these miracles is that Luke calls them extraordinary miracles. Uh, By definition, a miracle is already extraordinary, but Luke adds this, extraordinary miracles. And the word that Luke uses here is not something like awesome or incredible, which is usually how we use that word, extraordinary. Uh, This word that Paul uses, or that Luke uses, literally means unusual, or even more literally, not the common way. And so Luke is telling us that this wasn't normal. God didn't do this through Paul in every city he went to. This is the only instance in the book of Acts where we read about God using an apostle's clothes to heal people and cast out demons. And so the two things we need to see here that God was doing these miracles. They were genuine displays of God's power for his glory and that this was unusual. So it wasn't normal for Paul. It wasn't normal for any Christian. And so then we should ask, well, then why did God choose to do this through Paul in Ephesus? And I think the rest of the story shows us why. Because in response to these miraculous healings and deliverances, we get another crazy story where these itinerant Jewish exorcists knew that Paul claimed to do these miracles because of the power of Jesus, and so they want to harness that power for themselves. This group was known for going around the first century world performing magic and claiming to cast out demons. And the way they did it was they would often recite this long list of names of different gods and goddesses and powers just to make sure that they wouldn't leave anyone out. And just in case any one of them was actually the real God and could actually do these things, they wanted to make sure to include that God's name in their list. And so now it seems like they want to make sure they add Jesus to their list. And Luke tells us about a specific situation with a group of exorcists who were the seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish high priest. This group attempts to cast out a demon by the name of Jesus. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And then we get this response that is supposed to be funny. I heard a couple of chuckles when we were reading it um, because the demon says, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? So the demon is intimately aware of Jesus and his power. 
He's aware of Jesus's power displayed through Paul, but he's never heard of the sons of Sceva and he's not very impressed. And instead of the demon listening to the sons of Sceva, the, the man that's possessed by the demon attacks them to the point where they have to run out of the house naked and wounded. It's meant to be a humorous story and it also is a stark contrast to another famous story that you might remember from the gospels where Jesus encounters a man who has been possessed by many demons. And Jesus, one man by himself and his power, easily casts out the many demons from that man. But here in Acts 19, you have seven men trying to cast out one demon, and yet the one demon masters the seven men. Jesus could command many demons at once, but many men couldn't even command one demon. So the contrast of those two stories highlights for us that there are, there's power in the evil spiritual forces of the world over human beings, but there's, it's even greater Jesus's power over the evil spiritual forces. And the result of the story here is verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. But Ephesus was a very pagan city. It was the home uh, to the temple of Artemis, which was larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It, it was a city where everything revolved around false gods and the worship of these false gods. And that was true for a lot of pagan first century cities, but it was especially true here in Ephesus. The city was known for their worship of Artemis and everything in the city revolved around Artemis worship. It was a city much like Athens or even more so that we saw a couple weeks ago where Paul entered the city and he couldn't help but notice that the city was full of idols and it provoked him to his spirit. Ephesus was equally as idolatrous to Athens or even more so. The city was held captive by these false gods and the evil spiritual power in the city. And so why did these powerful displays of God's power happen in this city more than in other cities we've seen in Acts? Why did God choose this city to use Paul's dirty rags to heal diseases and free people from demonic oppression? Uh, why did this story of a demon causing a man to beat up seven other men so that they run out of a house naked happen here in Ephesus? And it was to display that Jesus, not Artemis or anyone else, is Lord. One commentator says it like this. He says, this story and presumably others like it became known among both Jews and Greeks in the area. And the effect among a superstitious people was to cause both fear and praise for the name of Jesus. In a situation where people were gripped by superstition, perhaps the only way for Christianity to spread was by the demonstration that the power of Jesus was superior to that of the demons. So it took place in Ephesus very clearly displayed to the people of that city that everything else they worshiped and looked to was worthless compared to Jesus. The statement, Jesus is Lord, was on display for all to see in the city. And Jesus' lordship is, is on display all over the pages of the New Testament. In the Gospels, Jesus calmed a storm, demonstrating that Jesus is Lord over the natural world. He turned water into wine, demonstrating that he's Lord over physical matter. He cast out evil spirits, demonstrating that he's Lord over evil spiritual forces. He healed sickness and disease, demonstrating that he's Lord over our bodies and our cells. 
And he rose from the dead, demonstrating that he is Lord over life and death itself. Over and over again, Jesus revealed to the world that he was the rightful Lord of all. But it's not just enough to see Jesus as Lord. Jesus' lordship also has to be recognized and made personal. The seven sons of Sceva in this story, they knew Jesus was powerful, but they wanted to harness Jesus' power and use it secondhand for personal gain. They, they wanted Jesus to be Lord over demons and disease, but they didn't want Jesus to be Lord over them. In verses 18 and 19, though, we get a picture of what it looks like, not just as to see Jesus as Lord, or not just to desire Jesus' lordship power, but to actually recognize that if Jesus is Lord over all things, he ought to be my Lord as well. So notice what happens here in these verses, 18 and 19. Luke says, many of those who were now believers... And remember, Paul's been in Ephesus for two years now, and many people have come to trust in Jesus. And so it seems like from the story, this was a group of people who were already trusting in Jesus before the Sons of Sceva incident. And it says, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who have practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So this was a group of Christians in Ephesus who had been involved in the occult just like the sons of Sceva. They had become Christians, but apparently they had continued to participate in some of these evil practices in the city. But then when they saw Jesus' lordship displayed so powerfully through Paul and through the sons of Sceva incident, they came and they confessed their sin. They burned their incredibly valuable books that they needed in order to practice their magic. In other words, these were believers. They were genuine followers of Jesus who believed that Jesus was Lord, but at the same time, they were holding on to something else over here that possibly earned them some money or maybe just notoriety or maybe they just liked doing it, even though those practices were inconsistent with Jesus' lordship over their lives. It's interesting that, that the title Lord Jesus shows up so much here in Acts 19. Um, The group in that first section who didn't really know Jesus was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Jewish exorcist here try and invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. And the result of the, the incident with the sons of Sceva was that the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled in Ephesus. And that title, Lord Jesus, is, it's scattered all throughout the book of Acts, but it's not really used all that much. And right here in Acts 19 and on into Acts 20 is by far the highest concentration of the usage of that title for Jesus in the whole book. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think Luke seems to be describing the events in Ephesus in greater detail than in a lot of other cities. And the depiction that we get of what's taking place there is that there's a great spiritual battle between the false gods and evil spiritual forces of Ephesus on one hand and Jesus, the one true God, on the other. And the, question, the battle is over the question of who is Lord? Who or what deserves my allegiance, my worship? And the battle for lordship isn't unique to Ephesus. It's not unique to a pagan world filled with gods and goddesses. Uh, We may not feel the pull to worship Artemis or to harness evil spiritual powers for wealth or fame, but the tug and pull on our heart and soul for allegiance and worship is just as strong for us today 
as it was for Ephesus in the first century. There's so many things calling out to us and pulling our worship away from Jesus. Even for those of us who have trusted Jesus for salvation and believe that Jesus is Lord, it's still a battle to live that out every day. In Ephesus, the cultural current taught people to make Artemis or another god or goddess their Lord. Um, Our cultural current teaches us to make ourselves Lord. And if we are Lord, we can do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. And if Jesus is Lord, we're compelled to do what Jesus wants us to do when he wants us to do it. And those two things don't fit together very well. And so even for genuine followers of Jesus, every single one of us is holding on to and clinging to a few things like these magic books here in Ephesus that are inconsistent with Jesus's lordship over us. And it doesn't mean that we're not saved. It doesn't mean that we're not truly Christians or following Jesus. It just means that there is an ongoing battle in our heart over who is Lord, and there always will be. Uh, Chris put it like this in a conversation a couple weeks ago, this analogy that I I thought it was helpful. Um, He said that as followers of Jesus, we're all uh, playing multiple paths in life, and we're trying to see which one makes us fulfilled and the most happy. And so we've got the Jesus path over here, And we genuinely love Jesus. We believe that Jesus died for our sins, was raised from the dead, and is Lord over all things. And so we follow Jesus. But then over here, we have this other path. And on this path, we put things like the pursuit of wealth or possessions or work or sexuality or power or experiences. And because our hearts are not fully 100% convinced at all all times that Jesus and the life he invites us to is the best life there is, we have this other path over here and we leave it open. And it doesn't mean these paths are equal. Jesus, the Jesus path could be the main path, but all of us have this little side trail over here that we want to leave and have available. And as we go throughout life, we, we try and play both paths. We follow Jesus and we see where that leads us. But just in case the Jesus path doesn't actually make us fulfilled and happy, we follow this other path at times as well. But to keep the metaphor going, uh, these paths are divergent, and it's not possible to follow two divergent paths at once. Imagine if you're out hiking, um, you come to a fork in the trail, and one trail goes left, and one trail goes right. And you think you're supposed to go left, but you're not 100% sure. And so instead of just going left and committing to that trail, you decide it would probably just be safer to split the difference and go straight into the woods. It wouldn't be very smart. The nature of two divergent paths is that you have to choose one or the other. If you try and combine the two, you're just going to get lost. And yet, that's often what we do with our discipleship. We follow Jesus, but just in case, we try some other paths as well. Uh, Here's how one pastor says it. He said, to to say yes to Jesus's invitation is to say no to a thousand other things. Legend has it that before going into battle, the Knights Templar were baptized, but they would hold their swords above their heads as they went under the water, as if to say, Jesus, you can have all of me except this. Not my violence, not my quest for glory, for legend, or history. We all do this. We might not hold up a sword, For us, it could be a debit card, a relationship, sexual ethic, a wound, an entertainment habit, a political or even theological position. It could be anything. But how often do we say, if not in word, 
than by our actions. Not this, Jesus. Not this. What we see in Ephesus is that when these believers come and they confess their sins and they burn their books, it's a picture of what it means to say, yes, Jesus. You are Lord, and because you are Lord, you have authority over me and my life, and therefore I will lay everything aside and run down your path alone. To follow Jesus as Lord is to surrender everything to him and to allow him to guide and lead everything that we think and do. And the great paradox of it all is that laying aside the other paths we think will make us happy and looking to Jesus alone is actually the path to more joy and fulfillment than we could ever imagine. Writing about verses 18 and 19, one commentator said, these people recognized that genuine discipleship involved letting go what they treasured in order to enjoy the blessings of God's kingdom. It makes me think of one of my favorite parables from the life of Jesus. Uh, Matthew 13, 44, it's just one verse, a one verse parable. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So the man sold everything. He laid aside everything in order to get that treasure. And the parable says that he did it in joy, not sadness, because he knew that what he was getting was far more valuable than what he was giving up. And the invitation for us is to do the same with Jesus because the blessings of his kingdom are far greater than what the things that we cling to can provide. One more quote, um, and honestly, this one's a little bit dramatic, so I wasn't sure I, I wanted to include it, but I think there's some truth in it, and it kind of drives home the point. It says, this means giving over those last clung-to areas of our lives, those last three rooms, that last 10% that we are still keeping for ourselves because we need those compensations to enable us to handle our tensions. And the sadness that so subtly clings to us like an odor, even in our goodness and generosity, is there because like the rich young man, we are still walking away from Jesus's full invitation. We are still holding something back, still holding on to some of our own riches. I don't know about you, but as hard as it is to give the last 10% to Jesus, as hard as it is to live this out, I don't want to hold anything back from God. I don't want to just go through the motions of church and religious practices without deeply knowing the God of the universe and experiencing his blessings in my life. But to truly know God and to experience the life that he created us for means recognizing that Jesus is the rightful Lord of my life. He's the one, the only one with the authority to provide the accurate map towards the life that is truly life. And then I, my response is to follow his path alone. Well, let me just summarize the rest of chapter 19, and then we'll land the plane. Uh, if you're getting nervous that we're going to read the rest of the chapter, um, we're not going to do that, I promise. So let me summarize. Um, I don't know why I'm picking up my Bible. I said I'm not going to do that. Um, it Really, the rest of the chapter continues to be a powerful story, but we just have way too many verses. And so um, what happens is that Paul is preparing to leave Ephesus and start back towards Jerusalem. Um, and then he says in here that he wants to head towards Rome. Um, but as he's preparing to leave, the, the tensions between the Christians and the non-Christians in the city hits a boiling point. 
And so apparently what happens is that so many people in Ephesus are now following Jesus and acknowledging him as Lord that the local business people who make money off of the Artemis shrines that they sell are now upset because people aren't spending as much money on these shrines. And so one of the shrine makers named Demetrius stirs up a large crowd. Um, He gets them fired up about the health of the business in their city and the pride of the city over the temple to Artemis, and it leads to a riot. And this riot spills over into the theater in Ephesus, which is um, this large 25,000-seat theater that most of it is actually still there today in the city. And several of Paul's companions are are dragged into the theater, and for two hours, it says, the townspeople are crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then eventually the, the town clerk settles the crowd down. He says that they, they're in trouble of, um, they're in danger of being charged with rioting. And so the crowd just disperses and there, there's not much further escalation. And that's how Paul's time in Ephesus comes to an end. And one thing that stands out to me uh, from this section of chapter 19 is that Paul's been in Ephesus for two years now. And Luke hasn't told us about uh, anyone being concerned about the shrine business or about any rioting taking place in the city against the Christians. But now, on the heels of these believers burning their magic books, this incident takes place. And it seems like what happened in Ephesus was that Christians began giving to Jesus the last 10% that they had been holding back. They began to stop participating in the business of the city that they realized was too entangled with Artemis worship, and now the business in the city suffered. And we don't have time to get into this any further, but I do think there's a lesson here for us, which is that Christians who don't look any different than the culture around them have a hard time making a difference for Jesus in their city. If the Christians in Ephesus had continued to buy these Artemis shrines and go to the Artemis temple, it doesn't seem like people would have cared very much. But when they fully surrendered to Jesus and separated themselves from those things that were inconsistent with his lordship, they began to stand out. And when we fully surrender to Jesus, we'll stand out too. And I think that's true even in a Christianized culture like ours and our potential to impact the city for Christ grows. So that's Acts 19. There's a a lot going on there, and um, I think this chapter illustrates for us what it means that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. It shows us that the gospel isn't merely an offer of forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God when we die. It's also an invitation to live under the Lordship of Jesus here and now and to experience the life that is truly life. And so as we close, uh, let me just ask you, what areas of your life do you still need to give over to Jesus? And we all have areas in our life that we need to give over to him. What things are you holding on to that are inconsistent with Jesus' lordship? What, where are you trying other paths for fulfillment and happiness in life that are divergent with Jesus' path? And I want to close with Hebrews 12, uh, 1 through 2. This is what it says. It says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The way we're able to lay aside those things that we need to lay aside is by looking to Jesus. 
in Gethsemane, just before his death, we saw Jesus in agony because he didn't want to die the brutal death that he was headed for. And yet Jesus laid aside that path for the path that his father set before him. And he went to the cross. He he accomplished our salvation. He inaugurated a new kingdom. And our response is to recognize that in Jesus' resurrection, God affirmed him, Jesus, as the world's true king and Lord, and to live in light of Jesus' lordship and surrender all that we are to him. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, this is hard, hard stuff. We all know that We know that Jesus ought to be Lord, but our hearts are pulled in so many different directions. And so we just pray that by your grace and through your spirit, you would help us surrender more and more of ourselves to you. Father, give us more of yourself. In surrendering to you, Father, give us the life that is truly life. Lord, for those who are in this room this morning who don't know if Jesus even is Lord or worth following, Father, we just pray that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. We pray that you would make Jesus' worthiness as the Lord of all clear to them. Make it clear to me. Make it clear to everyone in this room. And help us, by your grace, follow Jesus with all that we have. It's in his name we pray. Amen.